Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. Now, and you know what's even better than that? Today we have a man, <laughs> and he's not as old as I am. I'm not at all trying to be insulting. He's, he's a baby compared to me, but of course I'm older than the mountains. Now, our guest today is Rick Rogers. Hello, Rick Rogers. Hello, Denise Vivaldo. I know. I don't know why I always call you both names because they go so well together. They do. I was, my, my parents stayed up all night to give me a nice, clean name. I love your name. Now, Rick and I are going to discuss a couple of things, but before we even started, I already said to him, we're going to have to do part two because we are trying to kind of encapsulate like Ooh, 50 years of cooking between our both our careers into a 25-minute podcast, and I don't think that can be done. So I just will tell you this story, and then I want, I've got a couple of questions for Rick, and he, it's so nice of you, Rick, to give us this time. Years ago, I met Rick at ICP, and we shared a very famous producer-director named Bruce, who was a dear friend, and that's when I met you. He and you came into one of the conferences together and they were, it was a cooking in concert with Julia and Graham, Graham, Graham Cow. Bruce was so nervous because he didn't think the backstage kitchen manager had prepared enough and would I help if they needed to? But Bruce was just being a perfectionist. And of course the woman in charge had probably gotten this thrown in her lap like hours before. So, right. but, Bruce said, oh, you should meet Rick. Rick, this is Denise. And it was such a lot. And then I got to see you every year after that. And of course, we have many mutual friends. But so, you know, to, to call Bruce an old friend of mine is um, true. That, yeah. that is true. But he was actually my boyfriend in college. I, and honey. So if you think back to. You know, there we there we are in at San Francisco State. Uh, I was in theater. He was in communications, media, communications, basically video production. Back when you know there was hardly any video production, yeah. no one knew what video was. Um, so anyway, um, if you would have told us that he would have ended up as Julia Child's director. And that I would have followed him in the food business, we would have said you were nuts. I know. Then, you know, he went right out of college to Channel Nine in San Francisco, which is the PBS station KQED. Which and, is where I met and, Bruce working right. on several shows that were filmed there at KQED. Right. And so um, he was definitely um, the barefoot boy. Um, at KQED and just went on, had a really wonderful career. And he also did a lot of, uh, we're talking about the late Bruce Franchini. I'm very- Yes, I didn't say his last name unless, no, I wasn't gonna say his last name unless you were comfortable with me saying Yeah, that's all good. And um, <laughs> so anyway, um, but you know, he did some really, really incredible uh, documentaries for PBS over the years, including some with um, Audrey Hepburn yes. and Barbara Cook. He did a couple of nightclub cabaret things. It was, you know, I learned so much from him about life and culture and stuff. He definitely. Um, he had good taste. He had very good taste. No one and, else. Um, 
So anyway, but you know, this is like the thing is that when one thing you and I were talking about off camera uh, or off mic, I should say, which is that there's so many unsung heroes in our business. I know. And you know, that Bruce directed hundreds of Julia and Jacques shows and culinary shows. Yes. And he was really responsible for creating that high class, high tone, I'm going to teach you cooking class. Not yes. I'm going to entertain you. I'm going to tell the story um, about a friend of ours who is a TV chef and that her show went off the air as all shows eventually do. And a producer came to her and said, well, we need you to do another show. You have to get back on the air. She was like, okay, what's the idea? And he goes, I want you to teach these two people how to cook. And so, so it was these two young model types and our friend who shall remain nameless, who is more, shall we say, maternal. And so she tells me that they would have her cohorts purposely do stuff to drive her crazy. Like, well, now you add the eggs to the bowl and they would throw the whole egg in the bowl with the shell. I know. Honey, It. we'll talk about that. But Bruce did, was a trailblazer in, in the, the best cooking shows. Now, he also, his family owned a restaurant, Frankie's. <laughs> And behind it, I mean, this was, this is the best, but behind it was Las Galinas Swim Club where I grew up, okay? And his oldest sister and my oldest sister were in the local ballet aquacade. So when I first met him, we just laughed so hard because, and like you and I were saying, because of our overcrossing in careers and friends and clients, I mean, it, we were bound to meet. Now, one more thing, and then I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. When Cindy probably has not heard this story, Cindy says she can't believe she, when she hasn't heard a story since we've worked together for 20 years. You and I were in, I think it was Chicago, with Linda Carucci. You had a car for some reason, Rick. I don't know why you had a car, but if you, but we wanted to go to someplace. Was it, was it a Rick Bayless restaurant? I'm not sure, it was someplace. It was a good restaurant and you got us a reservation and you drove us there and we were laughing and gossiping about people at ICP and just having a, a wonderful, fun evening. A man across the room who was in another diner got up and came over to our table and said, I've heard you, you're with a food conference here and you and I and Linda all smile and the man says, you're loud, you're rude, you need to be quiet in this restaurant. And we, I think we were, I don't remember that we replied to him. Well, I, we were we so were, shocked. We were so shocked. Somebody would take make the effort to come up. We were just, you know, okay, so this is, this is. The, we were the, having the, fun. <laughs> yeah, it's called, no, he was probably trying to impress some date. And she was looking over at us going, I want to be at that table. Those people are having a good time. You wow. know, that's what it was all about. I, I'll never forget it. And since then, <laughs> since then, 
I've always, once or twice, because you know, I, I'm not, I can't believe anyone would call me loud, but when people say to something, I feel like saying, I'm so sorry that I'm having fun that that offends you. If you think I'm loud now, you should have been in Chicago. <laughs> no, but see, this is, this is, this is a really interesting thing here because this shows the um, rationale, what you remember and what I remember. Because I remember specifically that it was Minneapolis, not Chicago. Okay. That, that we went to this restaurant that people were telling us was the Chez Panisse of uh, Minneapolis. And that the reason why it was so loud was that because they didn't really have enough money to decorate the restaurant in a manner that you and I would have done it. Um, be, and that there were very shiny uh, wood floors everywhere. That? And that our voices kept on resonating off of the walls. And so we were twice as loud as because there were echoes in this cheap ass restaurant that didn't have enough money to put curtains on the windows. Now you could very well be correct. And you and I have also this, said this to each other. When you've gone to ICP, when you'd gone for 20, 30 years, the city's all right. Do you think we should tell people what ICP stands for? Well, yes. Because there may be some people listening to this uh, yeah. podcast who wouldn't know. Now I need to tell you, it gets mentioned because so many of the people that have been on, I met through IACP, right. the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And I always say to people, I think, I know this, it changed my career for the best, Rick. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I, I used to go to ICP in the beginning I went to network and that happened. And then mm -hmm. in the later years, I went to see the people that I adored. So that happened. And, but that leads us into what one of the things, okay. So Rick and I uh, talk on Facebook like we all do. And we have streams that some people, you know, they're not even food streams sometimes. Sometimes they're just each of our personal streams. So I was uh, given a copy of The Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard, the brand new book by John Birdsall. And Diane Jacobs, my friend, has said, oh, you have to read it because it's such fabulous writing. Talking about Rick, and Rick and I always talk about selling our stories. <laughs> and we're just waiting for all the people to die because we don't want to get sued. But I, I posted the part that shocked me, and but people need to know, Early in Rick's career, early, he, he was a kid. You were a recipe tester for James yeah. Beard. Because I mean, I, if you were to pay me, I would test recipes for you tomorrow. You know, so <laughs> my age really has nothing to no, do with it. I know, I didn't mean that. you were a kid. What does have to do with it is because when I first moved to New York, I fell in very quickly with. I started meeting the right people at the right place at the right time. Yep. And part of that had to do with the fact that when I moved from San Francisco to New York, I was an actor and all of my friends, 55 people from my, from my graduating class at San Francisco State moved to New York at the same time as me. We got each other jobs. A lot of people ended up on Broadway and 
in movies and all of that. And they used me as a caterer. So um, I started meeting celebrities right off the bat in, in New York. This is 1980s. And a friend of mine who was catering with me in the kitchen had a side job at the test kitchen of Food and Wine magazine. Ah. Also testing recipes for a man named Bert Wolf, ah. who a lot of people know as a TV uh, personality. He has had food travelogue documentaries on cable stations, various cable stations for decades. Decades. But in 1980s, early 1980s, I worked in his test kitchen. Okay. So it was my understanding that the way how Bert got into the food business was because he was uh, an attorney to uh, James Beard. <gasps> oh, now I don't know. Bert Wolf had great shows. They must be somewhere. YouTube, somewhere you must be able to pull up some of that work because he was a great, oh, yeah. he was a, he was great and he was very good on camera. Oh, that's fascinating, Rick. Well-produced shows. Well-produced. Everything was correct. Yes. Not, you know, like, I'm, you know, there's a lot of controversy right now um, about the Stanley Tucci um, Italian yes. thing, which is that everything is very romantic and everything, you know, is very, um, there's a rude word that I don't think that I can use here. Sexy, there we go. That's, okay. a, that's, a, that's a safe word. Um, but you know, the other thing is that there are certain things that are not exactly correct according, because in Italy, recipes are made according to a codice. Yeah. Is that the right yeah. word? Yeah, yes, meaning- Codex? Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, and then yeah. if you, it's like, you know, the original Bolognese that I learned had chicken livers in it. Yes. And I was taught, if you don't put chicken livers in your Bolognese, you are scum. <laughs> you, you will- Did you, you get that from my grandmother? Because that was what she would have said to you. You will go to hell if you don't put chicken livers in your bolognese, or if you put onion, if you don't, if you put onions in your amatriciana, I understand. You yeah. will go to hell if you use pancetta instead of guanciale. You will go to hell. So, but anyway, Bert was different than that. So I learned. I bet how to test a recipe and how to write a recipe. Excellent. And then the other thing was that I ended up working for Maria Gornicelli, which was another um, legendary person in the food legendary. business. Way too much. But as far as like, I was very much involved with the beard circle um, of Bert Wolf and Barbara Kafka. Yes. And of course. Uh, everybody knew that um, James Beard had a boyfriend whose name was Gino. Yes. And that Gino had a business, it wasn't even a side business. <laughs> Gino's business was that he made daquas and 
I think a chocolate. He loved aquas. And didn't he cut them in unusual shapes because he'd been an architectural student? I remember them as being daquas. Yes, daquas. And there was an unusual meringue, though. I mean, inside a daquas, there was something else. But yes, I read it in the book about that. And oh, I didn't. Okay, it was in the book. It was in the book. But it was in the book. This Little is what I remember. It. And so one of the places, and, and because Beard, it was not beyond Beard to strong arm his buddies in the restaurant business to buy their desserts from Gino. I, now, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, he had 300 pounds to throw around, but go for it. Yeah. You know what? I think, Rick, you hit a nail on the head, and it's a very interesting book. And if people, I'm sure the libraries have them, uh, people could, you know, uh, we're going to be giving away a copy in a month or two oh, for people to. I, I think it's a really, really beautifully written book, but. I do. What I think one of the things that, that, that I'm seeing is that uh, a lot of intimates of Beard did not seem to want to be interviewed okay. by John Birdsall because I'm missing some names in that I know people that are still alive. And I think that a lot of that has to do with Birdsall's politicizing of Beard uh, as far as making him a gay icon when Jim wanted to, wanted to be in the closet. You know, you have to remember, I mean, I'm a gay man. And uh, so, and I have experienced the entire trajectory um, firsthand um, and as from, you know, coming out when I was in high school to getting married to my husband. We've been together for 40 years, but we weren't, didn't get married until five years ago. Yeah. So um, Beard would not have known what it meant to be out. I, I because of the way how he was raised. Yes. Honey, this is something, and it's brought back a lot of feelings. I haven't read, I have about a fourth to go. Um, it's like I hadn't finished my book report before I called you, Rick. I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And it's so interesting that you would talk about that you left San Francisco State and then went to New York. And that the, because I just, having grown up in San Francisco and during, in, in the 70s and lived there in the 80s and went to school there in the 80s at the, at the Culinary Academy, I was so used to my friends being out of the closet. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I hardly knew, it was the end of the generation, that's all I can say, of men that had to stay in the closet. So the whole time I'm reading this book, I'm thinking about, and none of it was, I know he's politicized it, you're right. And he's, in some of his writing, he, to me, throws in a word or two just to, to create a little drama. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not sure, it, 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 but, it's, I think it's very important, especially this time in our culture and our society, that we recognize some gains in human rights. Do you know what I mean? I mean it. It's oh, sure. some of it. It's so, not, so just because just because Birdsall would have liked it if Beard 
was a gay icon had come out. This is another thing that I don't remember this being in the book. I remember this from life, in my life, observing this. Okay. So it's 1982, and Craig Claiborne, another big old queen in Sam, in uh, the New York food world. But I and love Craig is, Claiborne. But this is really true that the that there was a gay food mafia. Oh yes, you know yes. James Beard, Craig Claiborne, um, Richard Olney, Um Now I'm now I'm stumbling, but okay, it was, no, I know. It was the real, it was the real thing. And so, um, and these people were very, very happy with their positions and did whatever they could to maintain them. Let me tell you. So, um, so anyway, so Craig Claiborne wrote a book called A Feast Made of Laughter, an autobiography, in which he alleged that his father sexually abused him. That his father, Craig's father, was a pederast. This, you see that punch bowl over there? What's in that punch bowl? That is kind of the way that the food community took this um, allegation. Got it. And Craig became a pariah. <gasps> and, and now this is the guy who was the food editor of the New York Times. Absolutely. This was 35 40 years ago, folks, people did not go around writing stories about how their father put their hand up their skirt, you know, and I am not, not, I'm, I am not uh, belittling it, or what am I trying to say? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make light of it at all. Of course but not. He said it, and it was a huge scandal. Now, if I were James Beard, who was 80 years old at the time, probably 82, and um, had a million health problems and knew he was at the end of his life, just because young guys like me were going to Studio 54 and, you know, lifting <laughs> and, and walking around half naked down the <laughs> back. That was the last time anybody saw me half naked. Was Gay Pride <laughs> Parade, 1986? But anyway, um, it was not him. Uh, and, honey, it's how we. I agree. You know, there's so much how we are raised. Okay, and that's what I see in a cultural divide so much in America today. But if you are, if you have hidden something all your life to turn around, as you just said, at 82 years old and say, oh, let me correct the record. People aren't going to do that, okay? Well, besides, People... there was no record to correct. Well, did, yeah. the, I, I re one thing I really appreciated about John's book was his research about, uh, I'm talking about you know, John like he's a close friend. Um, <laughs> you know, we I think we met in passing at I. Um, but I mean, what I did like about the 19 mid-century 1950s was about that extremely insular and people protected each other, yeah. you know, because it was an enclave. It's like, you know, you hired that your your gay friend James Beard to 
host your dinner party for you and your girlfriend because you knew that he wasn't going to go out and gossip. If you were... It was a very... Broadway star, a lesbian Broadway star. if, If you're in an unsafe situation... You protect yourself. Do you know what I mean? And I'm sure I, one of the first jobs I had part-time when I still lived in San Francisco, I worked and I was getting engaged, but I had worked with a gay man in our day jobs and his name was Jim and he was just too charming. And he bought a gay bar in San Francisco and it was called the Pussycat or the Black Cat. It was famous. I think it was on Geary Street for a million years. The Black Cat was a very famous place. Yes. Well, I would talk to a waitress on Sundays because they would be so busy. People just cruising and having fun. You know, I don't mean cruising in that sense. Was I meant- the Black Cat on Broadway in North Beach? Oh, think- that could have been it. Because you, I think you're mixing up a big, wide street with another big, wide street. Well, like Chicago and Minneapolis. <laughs> Right. <laughs> now, it anyway. was in the Midwest and we got kicked out of the <laughs> But he bought it from, it had been there. And so I worked there on Sundays and I, he, they were just. Oh my God. Here. You must have made a mint working brunch. No, at the you have no idea. And that's why, but you know what else? It's because I was comfortable, Rick, but also, but then he'd say to me, what's why he was very, he was very diminutive, beautifully groomed. He was very he cleaned the place all up. It was kind of a little, needed some paint. And he used to say to me, Denise, I know you can handle it, but also you're going to have fun there. And that's what I did. And then once in a while I said, now, listen, if we get raided, you can just stay where you are. Cause you're not, <laughs> cause you're, you're a, a now small, again, small gay woman, a small straight woman trying to serve drinks, but honey, it, it taught me so much, Rick. And I just, but I certainly know that there were times, I have known friends, then in the 80s, Rick, you know, San Francisco. So here people are trying to just fill their lives. There were horrendous gay bashings going well, on. That's what I was going to say is that right now, you know, people may not have let that sunk in. You, if you were at a gay bar in 1969, you could, you were paying off the mafia, you were paying off the police, you were still, and this is why Stonewall happened. That's right. Was because um, that that place in New York was um, raided, and people said enough of this. That's right. But anyway, you th- is there anything else we could talk about about the cookbook business instead of doing um, uh, gay sociology? <laughs> because that does happen to be a specialty of mine. But I'm going to be uh, sure. That- <laughs> uh, well, let me tell you something. We covered several decades in only a few minutes. All right. As usual when we get together. That's right. So I just, but Rick, I think the fact that you started recipe testing and one of your first projects was with James Bearder working, you know, with Maria, especially since Maria just passed, it is culinary history. Do you know what I mean? It's culinary history. And that's, it shows the, the broad, one of the things that I would think that you could be really helpful. And some of the people, you know, we have a large audience, Rick, of, we didn't know this was coming, 40-year-old women, 50-year-old women. So they've still got 10 or 15 years to work. Do you know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. why we've had other writers on, we've had coaches on, we've had 
many people on. Mm -hmm. If you had advice in cookbook, now people, how many books have you, I know you've worked on over 50. I know you've written so many of your own, but 50 of other people's books. I would say 50 of my own and 50 of other people's. Okay, so that's a hundred cookbooks. Yeah. All right. Now, with that said, Rick, and I wrote this in the note to you, in today's publishing world, which is just, I don't think it's any more chaotic than it was before. Do you know what I mean? Or any, it's smaller in a way because so all the publishers are owned by, you know, these- The same people. Same people. <laughs> I remember when there were like 41 publishers in New York. Do you know what I mean? In my, in, in the 80s. And if you did, you went to one and they did turn down your proposal, you went to another one. And yeah, I there were 40 publishers you had to wade through. Exactly. And I know this, I know Irina Chalmers was a good friend of <laughs> yours, helped you. Yep. And Irina was the most generous person to me in the beginning of my career of anyone I've ever known. Okay. She would answer the phone, didn't know me. I'd say who it was. And then we kept on this long, you know, going conversation about writing and getting a cookbook done. Mm -hmm. Our society has changed so much with social media that we see cookbooks being published by people that have 250,000 Instagram friends. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But are those cookbooks in your, what do you think? What do you think that means? I mean, I, well, I think, this I is think the quality has gone down in cookbooks. I don't think there's, yeah. I, I think some are great and I read some and I get them from the publishers and I think, my God, they needed an editor. My God, they needed somebody who knew how to cook. Yeah, but first of all, finding somebody who needs, who, they, who, who knows how to cook, that is where you and I have also been lucky where our, our careers dovetailed because you on the West Coast, me on the East Coast, people did pick up the phone, editors and celebrities, and say, hi, I hear that you can save my neck by helping me in the, help me write this book. And, you know, baby, you pay, I saute. No problem, I am there. You know, so, um, so I've done a lot of celebrity cookbooks. One thing that is interesting about media, let me back start by saying media has always been important in cookbooks. Yes. When I was working with Maria Gornishelli, um, the secret to her success was that people remember Maria. I could finish a sentence every now and then. Every now and then I actually finish making a complete thought. But what I'm trying to say is that with Maria, is that her secret to her success was that she used to say to me, sell it, don't smell it. And what it. she would do is that she, people remember Maria as being the person who discovered, in quote, Rick Bayless, Lynn Rosetto Casper, Julie Sani, Rose Levy Barenbaum, um, or Barbara Tropp, now, for those of you who do not recognize some of these names, Google them because yes, yes. you would not be sitting here listening to us without these people like Barbara Tropp and uh, Rose Levy Barenbaum certainly is well known. Um, but at any rate, so, but 
she had the money in her budget to take a risk on, let's say, Barbara Tropp's enormous Chinese cookbook. Yeah, China Moon. Because, because her two main clients were the Frugal Gourmet and Mr. Food. So here's on one hand, Barbara Tropp getting baby abalone and mincing them and turning them into spring rolls. And Mr. Food is opening up cans of cherry pie filling and putting it on top of frozen yogurt. But Mr. Food was the one who was making the cash register ring. Now, and one of the things that I, you're absolutely right, I agree with everything. One of the things by John's book and what I know from my 35 years of food and what you're saying, it hasn't changed that much, Rick, in that it's always been marketing. There's always been a certain amount of deception. And I don't mean that in a, a bad way. But The polite thing is it takes a village. That's exactly correct. And, um, oh, the ga and Cindy is showing Rick and I her Grand Corps Galloping Gourmet. Now... Rick just made a fabulous point. And this is not changed in publishing, Rick, and you could not be more correct. That there, and I love a sell it, don't smell it. <laughs> I love that. By the way, I'm using that. And then with my husband later on, when I need to get out of trouble with something. Um, there have always been publishing houses that they have got cash cows. And you mentioned, I remember Mr. Food, he was here all the time. I mean, he filmed things here in LA. And the frugal gourmet, um, the frugal gourmet, but his estate might take offense. But our point, Rick, is so, and it's still like some books pay rent and keep the lights on. And then that gives the editor some money to print to stop with new authors. Do you take a chance on someone who's really good at what they do? Well, one thing that I want to go back to about something that, that was controversial in the okay. beard book was that people were shocked to find out how much Beard leaned on his helpers to write his cookbook. I, I was shocked. Yeah, and well, I knew that because I was there. But yep. the other thing, uh, I was four years old, but I was there. <laughs> That's right. So I worked on the Essential James Beard cookbook and I was very honored that the uh, uh, James Beard estate, which has nothing to do with the James Beard Foundation, um, chose me to do I, this. Yes, your book like, on the on the Amazon page, Rick. It's great. I mean, I saw something. It, yeah, it's it's really it really was an honor. Sure. So as part of that, I was given access to many people who were Beard's intimates, and there's one guy named John Ferrone, who um, has recently passed away, but John was um, was Beard's editor, I believe, at Athenaeum. And they were neighbors and they met on the street one summer afternoon when John walked by and Beard was fanning himself sitting on his stoop before air conditioning. And um, so John started editing Beard, but also he told me stories like, he said, we would be in France and that I would be sitting there and he would be dictating a recipe to me. And he says, you know, we're in France and I have to send this to the publisher. So I'm working on onion skin. If any of you remember onion skin paper. Yes. Onion skin paper and carbon 
cop and oh, carbon I hated carbon paper. Oh my God. So he says, so we, we would go out to a French restaurant in Provence because they used to work in Provence at Julius and yes. Simca's. And um, they would, he says, so like if, if, there, if, if there was a soup that Beard liked, the French, the, um, of course, Beard was not as well known in France as he was in the States, but the chef would come out and start dictating the recipe. He says, and so like Jim would pull out a ballpoint pen and start writing on John's back on his shirt. <laughs> and, you know, so I says like, and I only had, again, remember this was international travel in the 1960s. How many shirts was I going to have in my suitcase? Oh, that's so darling. You would wash them out in the sink and hang them up, okay. right? Fantastic. So, Listen. So, um, so as far, so that's the way how these books got written. The fact that those recipes actually work is what is amazing. Yes. Because I don't think that there was a lot of recipe testing going on, but Beard was a natural cook. And even if he was doing a cake, he would say in his mind, like you and I do, Denise, with our experience. Okay, I got three cups of flour here. So, all right, so that would probably mean two teaspoons of baking powder and one teaspoon of baking soda. And I better be sure that I use buttermilk as the liquid. And then you go from there and you add your eggs and your butter and your sugar and you got a cake. I know it's I think that that's now you have to come back Rick and we have to talk some more about things that things advice that you might have for young authors the other thing people need to know about is you are going to start an online cooking classes Rick has been a teacher to attract in the olden days people don't in the olden days I know but Rick not everyone knows this in this generation that people used to go do you know what I mean? Across the country, okay? Across the country, back and forth, crisscrossing the country. I would teach 22 cooking classes a month. That is- a, From and, Seattle to Miami and back and again. There weren't, you know, not, uh, it, it was it was wonderful. It was exciting. You could make a living. It, I'd never did that much. Rick, I did a lot of tours. Do you know what I mean? For my own books, I did a lot right. of tours. But I, um, I didn't cook that many classes a month. But now with cooking schools, of course, all the things that have happened, the upheavals we've had financially, no, it's not viable like it used to be. So I, but I think for you to start, teaching classes again online is brilliant. It's rickrogers.com. The classes are not available yet, but I know you're in rehearsals because I read it on your Facebook page. Yeah, I am, I am. So, but be sure to spell my name correctly, which is R-I-C-K-R-O-D-G-E-R-S, as in Rogers and Hammerstein. Now, listen, thank you so much for your time today. And really, you have to come back because we just have, we haven't even touched on any of the horror stories of the frugal gourmet yet. So we're not going to either. <laughs> well, I don't promise what you can't deliver. Rule number okay. one. <laughs> I will say this. 
when I realized that at a photo shoot, this, I'm just gonna end with this, with the frugal gourmet, that this lovely woman arrived and says to me, perfectly dressed, oh yes, I'm here from Central Casting. I guess I'm playing the doctor's wife. I almost lost it. And that is a true story, but I won't tell you anymore now. Yes, he had in one of them, the family cookbooks, he wanted to create this family on the cover, honey. And they went to central casting. <laughs> oh, well. Thank you so much. I so Thank look forward for to me. that. And I so look forward to seeing some of your online classes. And we'll just have to come back and talk some more. Yeah, we're good. We need to, um, I, I would really love to focus on the nuts and bolts of what I've learned uh, over 30 years in the cookbook business. Okay, so that's what we're going to call the next one, the nuts and bolts of the cookbook business. And you'll come and we'll talk about that. But thank you for your insights today on the man who ate too much. I, I was, I'm sorry, Rick, I was so much younger. I only met James Beard once. <laughs> Not true. I did meet him once. I'm, not, I, I'm sure I, I could be your grandmother. Thank you, honey. And it's lovely to see you and you look great. Uh, well, I'm feeling really good. So you good. see you around campus. Okay, honey. Bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. And wasn't that a fabulous show? And I cannot thank Rick Rogers enough. Now, everybody knows that we have a Facebook page called Women Beyond a Certain Age. We have a website called womenbeyondacertainage.com. Cindy, of course, who's the producer, engineer, and the everything, keeps these current. But if you want to listen to us, we're on Podbean. We're on iPod. Oh, dear. See, Cindy, without my Podbean. Oh, so close. Podbean, I think, was either started in Minneapolis or Chicago. I'm not sure which. Hmm. Anyway. Johnny Floors, I remember that. (laughs) Okay. Let me put it to you this way. Details. I'm a big picture gal. The details get lost. And thank God, Cindy picks up all the pieces. If you have any questions for us, we will put all Rick's vitals up when his podcast airs. And um, you can reach out to Rick at his website, uh, rickrogers.com. And of course, if you have any questions for Cindy and I, it's um, womenbeyond at icloud.com. Now, she didn't think I had that one, but I actually didn't have that one on the tip of my tongue. So thank you, everyone. Right when you get work, thank you again for the notes and the cards that we get. We appreciate everything. That's it. Bye, Rick. Bye, Cindy. Thank you. <laughs> Bye.